It's time to continue our series that we picked up two weeks ago. It's a series that I started uh, and, I, and I felt the Lord had put this on my heart to share because of the nature of the encounters with Jesus that are presented in this text. And, and, um, and so it's a series called Acts Reenacted. We're going to talk about the, how we can reenact the book of Acts in today's context and how we can engage with our community in a similar sort of way. Uh, to get things started two weeks ago, we looked at the early beginnings of the first century church and its origins on the day of Pentecost. And uh, there's far too much to go into today. It was a loaded time. Uh, well, I have We had a problem with the recording on the day, but I have since re-recorded it, so it can be put out on CD pretty shortly. So uh, get your orders into Art to Will if you like that, or download through our, our uh, podcast or website. So uh, you've got plenty of options. Options. So today we're going to stay within the day of Pentecost. If you have Bibles, Acts chapter 2 is what we're going to finish out the chapter today. So if you want to read along in your Bible, uh, it's a pretty good habit to bring your Bible to church, right? So if you, you know, if you have a Bible, take it off your bookshelf, take it out of your car and uh, bring it with you to church. Uh, I do have it on screen here for those who forget, but uh, you know, well, it's a good habit to bring the Word of God to the place where the Word of God is proclaimed. So uh, that's just a, a nice friendly reminder there. So um, we're going to look at fur- uh, further into the chapter at Peter's first major address to the people. The audience here is speaking, he's speaking to a collection of Jews that have gathered to worship in Jerusalem. They're familiar with the Lord, but they've made their devotion a very ritualistic thing. They are, you know, however, the move of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost has grabbed the attention of the entire crowd in present in downtown Jerusalem. Peter has a very unique opportunity presented to him here, and he uses these few minutes he has to highlight three major lines of thought uh, for the sake of the crowd that was before him. And these are lines, lines of thought that you and I can use in our day-to-day gospel presentations as well. If, as we engage with unchurched people, there are some great principles we can take away from this sermon today. So we're going to go through it a bit. We're going to start with verse 14, and we're going to read through a bit of Bible today. Here we go, verse 14. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not as drunk as you not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will see dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We'll leave it there for a minute. Peter's first key thought is this. This is a time, fellow people of Jerusalem, this is a time like no other. That is the first line of thought in Peter's saying here. We learned last week that Pentecost was linked with both a joyous and a solemn time of celebration. It was joyous because it meant a new harvest was beginning. There was a new time of reaping and there was a new time of prosperity for the nation that was going to come about. It had grown into a solemn thing as well because they linked it with the giving of the law, the Torah, at Mount Sinai. To the 120 followers of Jesus in the upper room, it had taken a third significant meaning where they were all filled with the spirit of the completed law, who was Jesus Christ. 
Peter's immediate task is to bring the Jews who are watching all this up to speed with what was occurring. To do this, on the day they celebrated the Torah, Peter begins to link the law, the Torah, and the prophets they esteem so high with the events that are happening around them right there. His first link is with the prophets by quoting Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. When we look at Joel's prophecies, we see a divine call for his immediate generation to repent, but also for his nation to look toward their ultimate salvation. In fact, chapter 2, verse 27, the verse before that passage, this shows that this culminates in the God who was among their people, which is a description of, of, uh, of the work of Christ. Their ultimate salvation would be the God that would come and dwell among their people. Then following that, there would be judgment, but not before the Spirit of the Lord will be poured out on the earth and the people would do great things in his name. By using this verse, Peter communicates a few things. First, that the Spirit of the Lord that the prophet Joel spoke about was indeed the same Spirit of the Lord that was at work before their eyes. Second, that this was the ushering in of the last days. This was the last outpouring of the Spirit on the world that Joel spoke of. This was an age between God dwelling among their people, which is what Jesus did, and God wielding final judgment on the earth. In other words, Peter was clearly telling the Jews in front of him, this is truly a time like no other. This is the time you've all been looking for. Take note, do not ignore this time because it signifies the last age that the world will ever see. And the Spirit of God is making his final advance to draw people to himself. That's point one. He then shifts gears a bit and begins his next point. We're going to verse 22. Acts chapter, 20, uh, two, uh, chapter 2, verses 22 onwards. He continues the conversation. People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, well, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said this about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers and sisters, we all know that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he was received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For, God, for David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter's next thought out of all that is this. 
this person that has shaken the world around us at the moment, Jesus, is a person like no other. We have a time like no other, and we have Jesus, who is a person like no other. When Peter is done linking the Spirit of God in the Old Testament to their local experience, he then links the Old Testament and the Spirit of God to Jesus. He does this rather cleverly by making clear two passages from the Psalms which had bamboozled the Jewish leaders for centuries because they grappled with the wordplay that was in action here. The first passage Peter uses is Psalms 16 verses 9 to 10. It was hard to work with because the Jewish leaders couldn't work out who the Holy One or the Faithful One was who would not see decay. They were trying to work that out. The other verse he quotes is from a Psalm 110 verse 1. And in Mark chapter 12 we show that this was a verse that Jesus himself quoted to the Pharisees. Knowing it had confounded the wisest mind, yet was actually abundantly clear to him. These verses were not initially regarded as messianic until it was made clear to them on Pentecost. And now, through the painful 2020 vision of hindsight, they could see the error of what they'd done with Jesus because these verses suddenly made sense. Peter clearly spells out who this person Jesus was. He was the only one, he was the one they were looking for through the law and the prophets. He was the one that God had sent And the things that happened to him in his death and resurrection occurred because God ordained it to be so. He was the one that would not see decay because death would not hold him in the ground. And he was the one who even now was at the right hand of the Father, equal with God and to be regarded as Lord of their lives. He was the true Messiah that they had lived in hope of. Jesus was everything he said he was, as we sung today. He was everything the scriptures pointed to. He was everything they had literally hoped for and he was to be worshipped as true Messiah. This truly was a man like no other in their life. This was their Messiah. He continues on, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Peter's, Peter's final thought was this. This time and this person calls for action like never before those present and listening have suddenly become aware that they are in a pretty bad spot they have rejected Jesus out of hand because they didn't fit the mold of what they anticipated as a messiah they were looking for a king who would sweep them as a nation into eternal victory over their enemies who would endorse and bless their rules and rituals and they would conquer the world together with their messiah what they didn't expect would be a guy from redneck Galilee who would challenge the control that came with the rites, rules, and rituals, who would come in humility, and who would liberate the most downtrodden of society. He continually caused the people around him to consider the state of their heart, to examine their motives, and to look carefully at their intentions and all that they did. Instead of recognizing him for the great things they did, he did, they crucified him. 
They rejected their Messiah because the packaging he came in and the lifestyle he promoted was not in line with what they in their humanistic thinking wanted. But even despite all that, the Jews in Peter's audience were given the opportunity to put things right. And finally, they were in a position where they were asking the right questions. Brothers, what should we do? Peter calls them to do three things. And the first century church got started when 3,000 people obeyed. It started by saying, repent. We learned about this word through our series on Revelation that we did early in the year. Repentance means to change one's mind or purpose. It is a word and concept which was used a lot when it came to God calling people back to himself. In Joel 2, just before the section Peter quotes, we see the words of God which capture this idea really well. He says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. The idea of repentance is to change your inner stance. The Lord picks his words carefully here. Rend your heart, not your garments. Actively make a change of heart, not a change of the outside squeaky cleanness, not about making yourself look the part, but deal with what is going on in your heart. Change, have a change in heart in your stance towards God. This was the challenge that was presented to the Jews. Their heart was full of hatred and anger towards Jesus. Yet Peter was calling for these people to change their mind about the claims of Jesus Christ. In order for them to come to right standing with God, they were required to change their position from hostility to Jesus and rejection of what he said to a place of belief and unabandoned embracing of what Jesus said and did. Repent. Then he says, get baptized. In church today, uh, we use that word around and some people look, look, look at it like they've been shot. <laughs> it's quite funny. And no, look, I can understand that because even in the Jewish world, this was a very controversial step for a Jew to take. Remember, the audience that Peter is dealing with here, this is Pentecost, where Jews from all over the world have come to worship. This is a very Jewish audience that's presented to them here. And it was the very first idea, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, so that's your Jewish people, then Samaria, then the world. So this was a very ordered system that was in place here. Jews were well aware of the baptism as a rite of passage. But it was primarily reserved for Gentiles who converted to Judaism. They would take this action as a symbol that their Gentile ways, their Gentile gods and their Gentile morals and their lifestyle was dead in the water and they would rise again a child of God and a member of God's family. This act was so powerful and convincing that Jewish men would treat these former Gentiles like brothers once baptism occurred. So much so that once baptism had occurred, they would even take the most hostile Gentile race, even the Philistines next door, and if they'd become a Jew, they would gladly give their sister, their mother, their daughters to these people as brides. That's how committed they were to it. To ask a Jew to get baptized 
was to ask them to acknowledge that they were outside God's ways and outside God's people. The deal was this. Their rejection of Jesus put them in a place where they were actually in that predicament. Through Jesus and the cross, the entire world would have the right to become part of God's people. It was no longer going to be about the chosen inhabitants of one particular nation. Right here we see an extreme case where religious heritage means nothing. And personal faith, personal repentance, and personal identification with Jesus mean everything. When a Jew came to that realization and changed his thinking, he would then have no issue with going on public record through the waters of baptism. Was baptism the point of salvation? No. Repentance is. In chapter 3, when Peter preaches again, we see he emphasizes faith and repentance to receive God's salvation. And later in the book of Acts, we see a guy named Cornelius who came to a place of repentance and was even filled with the Holy Spirit before his baptism. And consistently, in Scripture, a person is declared saved or in a righteous state before God through Christ is simply by their faith and not of works, lest any man would boast, as Paul writes. And baptism is definitely a work. It is an outer thing. It's not an inner thing. And Jesus is concerned about our hearts. But it was a work that was promoted in Jesus' Great Commission. And to the Jews, it was a major step in their realization of their place before God and their redefined position on who were genuinely genuinely considered the people of God. If I take it into today's understanding of faith, Am I in right standing with God if I have not been baptized? Again, Scripture is consistent in teaching that if you have placed genuine, repentant faith in Jesus Christ, the answer to that question is is a resounding yes. But the natural step from there throughout the book of Acts was to go through the waters of baptism. And in most cases, it was an almost immediate thing. The move of God that was at work was so compelling that these new believers had absolutely no problem with making their their faith public. And they caught the symbolism in a far more profound way than we do today. The Jews lived their whole life in an all or nothing way. Their rules and their rituals and their hundreds of bylaws to make sure that the law, the Torah was carried out to the letter. That was an all or nothing faith that they did. They approached their faith in Christ with the same vigor and commitment. Today in the West, we seem to be very, very private about our faith. However, if you go visit any developing country, you see their response to this is actually quite similar to the first century church. They're first in the water ahead of the guys trying to baptism, baptize them. If baptism has been an issue for some of us, then maybe, just maybe we need to take a leaf out of the Jews book and out of our developing nations, brothers and sisters. And failing all that, if it was good enough for Jesus to set an example for his followers, and if it was promoted by Jesus in his parting comments before ascension, maybe there's something in it for us as just an act of obedience to Jesus. We'll have a baptism service in about a month. Let's see how we go. I'll leave it there. Finally, he tells the audience that they will receive the Holy Spirit. We've talked about how this works a few times before. In John 14, Jesus spoke about the advocate, the counselor, who were the paraclete, who would descend and would dwell with them once he made his physical ascension. 
Jesus taught that this advocate would have the same divine nature as himself and would teach the same things that he himself taught. It was this advocate who had been poured out in the upper room and was giving these disciples a newfound voice to declare the wonders of God. It was freely available for anyone who would come to a place of repentance before God. Understand this. For us and for the Jews to receive the Holy Spirit at the day of their salvation, that this was a massive, massive statement of grace that was at work here. Think about what was an offer to this once hostile group of Jews. The one they rejected and crucified was now seeking to dwell in their being. The God they worshipped and worked so hard to please through their traditions and rituals was known to be a God that was pretty much at arm's length. The God that was offered on offer to them through Jesus was one who dwelled in the most intimate place of a man's heart. Not through ritual, but through simple faith and repentance. That's the gist of Peter's message. Now let's conclude, let's, come to a, let's bring this to an end here and let's get a bit practical here for a bit. I had a conversation with a lady on Sunday and it was hot on the heels of a religious moment. Uh, I was away last weekend, as you know, and we were having leave and on Sunday we attended our Jen, uh, Jen's niece's first communion. It was a Catholic thing. It's a very big deal for a Catholic family. It's, it's really, I, I didn't capture how big it really was until we ended up, you know, we went to the event and the building was like, I couldn't get a seat in the foyer. That's how chockers this place was. And, and it was like a really full on thing. And all these kids were receiving communion. The parents were, there was a great, the gravity of the situation was huge. And we ended up going back to, you know, obviously to my sister-in-law's house and, and, and there's a big lunch for it. And, and all these people have observed something pretty special and have come and, uh, and have all gathered together. So it's a very, you know, very sort of, um, it's almost like the environment in that house was not too dissimilar to what was going on on the day of Pentecost. A bunch of people who had experienced something religious and were still in that place of contemplation after it. This lady knew what I did for a living and began to offload a few burning questions she had. Particularly about the variety of religious movements out there and if there was any point of agreement. We've all heard those questions, haven't we? And I told her that pretty much every Protestant Christian religion out there uh, is united at least on one fact in who we understand Jesus to be. She goes, what's that? And I said, well, we all understand that Jesus was God in the flesh. She looked like she'd been shot. She looks at me and goes, I've never heard Jesus be described that way before. And it hit me. Half our city hasn't heard Jesus be described that way before. The people in our workplaces, the people that we interact with, have never heard Jesus be described that way before. That's a really amazing thing that light bulb went on. The only problem with that is that it opened the conversation further. If Jesus was God, what was he doing on the cross? I then had to lead, this then took me down the path we don't like to talk about, the uncomfortable territory. I had to explain the severity of sin and the need for sin to be punished. And I went on to explain it this way. Instead of punishing us, God placed all his wrath on himself at the cross. 
my sin put God in the flesh on the cross. She looked at me dumbfounded. She goes, is it that serious? And I said this line. I don't stand with confidence before God because I'm a good guy. Because in my heart of hearts, I'm not. I stand with confidence because of what Jesus did to put me right in right standing. I'm nothing without the cross. The message of Peter into Jerusalem is the same message we have for Wangaratta. It might be a city that has some awareness of God, but it is not in a place of favor before him. It might have heritage, and there are lovely churches dotted all around this wonderful city. But there is very little that is personal. It would do us all good to learn to articulate this message because it is our job to proclaim it. And it's my job to come alongside you guys, lead the charge, and train you guys how. The message of the gospel through Peter's eyes, through the context of Acts chapter 2, is this. First up, we crucified Jesus. Like the Jews, we as a race have rejected Jesus Christ and we are actively living in rebellion against him. Every sin we commit places us in a place of rebellion before God. It's not just a bit of oopsies, it's rebellion. Scripture tells us that the sinful mind is hostile to God. In our sinful state, we are outside God's plan and outside God's family. The Jews had heritage and works. They were God's people for crying out loud. But they had no relationship and no intimate knowledge of God. Suddenly, they were on the outside looking in. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one who God sent to pay sin's penalty. Instead of punishing us for our sin, all of it, no matter how trivial we think it is, God punished Jesus. Romans tells us that we can receive the work of the cross and escape our own punishment or reject it and face the punishment ourselves. But when we repent, in other words, when we change our mind and stance about Jesus, our sins are forgiven and we become sons and daughters of God. It's not our heritage that saves us. It's our faith that does. And when we change our outlook from hostility to faith, the Spirit of Jesus comes and dwells within us. He gives us power and courage to live a life of effective faith, and he teaches us continually about the things of God. We are truly complete because our identity is in God and not in our sinful selves. Take this CD with you. Do something with it. Take time to ponder those particular thoughts. Find some scripture. Let me set some homework. There's a group of people in, in the book of Acts, and we'll read about it down a track, called, uh, I think it was called the Bereans or whatever. They, they, they actually went and searched the scriptures for themselves to find out if everything the apostles were saying were true. Well, why don't I handball to you? Here's the message I've put out there. Why don't you go through and go, what's some scripture that I can find to back up what is being said here? How can I find Bible verses that appeal to me that I can share with conviction and I can use to back up this story of the gospel to other people? Where are the people around me at? 
What can I say of comfort? What can I say of love? What can I say of holiness? What can I say, if I need to, about sin? Go and, and let, let, you know, take some devotional reading. Look for some passages that will help you continue this thought along and be able to communicate this in your context. Find ways, memorize some handy scriptures to back it up, ponder these thoughts and share it far and wide. This is our message to be told to the community. We're going to pray, and then we're going to worship. So 